This podcast was produced by members of the Pinsker Centre Policy Fellowship 2020-2021. The Pinsker Centre is a think tank which focuses on global foreign policy while promoting freedom of speech and fighting intolerance. If you'd be interested in learning more about our work, follow the Pinsker Centre on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Applications for the 2021-2022 Fellowship Programme will open in the spring. Hi there, I'm Daniel Sachs. I am an undergraduate engineering student at the University of Birmingham. And today we're going to be addressing no platforming. The Cambridge Dictionary defines no platforming as the practice of refusing someone an opportunity to make their ideas or beliefs known publicly because you think these beliefs are dangerous or unacceptable. One of the examples that it gives here is the minister argued that no platforming was a threat to free speech. So in February 2019, it was reported that the universities have been given government guidance about no platforming and the extent to which it was okay. I'm just going to read an article headline here from The Guardian, which says, Trigger warnings okay, but no platforming may be illegal. Universities warned. So the general, the general point to all of this was that universities are kind of being told no platforming can be used to an extent. It may infringe upon free speech to turn around to somebody and say that your view is bad, I don't like it, as the Cambridge definition says, it's dangerous or unacceptable. It's not necessarily so clear-cut, because who decides what is dangerous and unacceptable? The government themselves have given very clear warnings that the legalities surrounding all of this may not be so clear-cut, and there's a possible room for reconsideration in the grand scheme of things. I think that's before we proceed to discuss any specific instances surrounding the adoption of those guidelines in 2019, as well as any particular instances of no platforming in university campuses. I think we have to give a brief explanation of what no platforming actually means in the context of university campuses. No platform policy has existed since 1973 on a nationwide level when it was adopted by the National Union of Students, which is an umbrella organization representing up to 600 university communities across the United Kingdom. Up until this point, this policy applied to two types of organizations. On the one hand, you had your Islamist organizations such as Al-Muhajirun, Muslim Brotherhood, Muslim Public Affairs Committee, UK. On the other hand, you had your fascist organizations, you know, your white supremacists and anti-Semites such as National Action, BNP, and the English Defense League. However, individual unions and student groups can decide on their own policies and reject people on an individual basis, and they can strike their own balance between freedom of speech and freedom from harm, purportedly. And this is where the greater room for controversy lies, because this supposed prince autonomy given to individual universities has produced differing outcomes on different campuses. And I was wondering whether you had any specific instances that you know which happened at your universities. My university, UCL, has one famous case of non-platforming, and that happened in 2015 when an individual called Mesa Gifford was invited to speak at the university. He's a British citizen, and then he decided to go to the Middle East and to fight in the Kurdish military against ISIS. Once he came back to the UK, he was invited by the Kurdish society at UCL to come to UCL and give a talk. And the reason why he was known platform, because when the student union received the speaker request to have him as a speaker on campus, 
the student union was really puzzled what to do with the speaker request that they contact the police to seek advice whether this individual should be allowed on campus or not but they didn't receive a response from the police. So that's why they decided to non-platform him. So this is a fairly unusual case of non-platforming, but at UCI, that's what happened in our university. So that was probably our only one case of non-platforming a speaker. I'm just gonna quickly jump in here and discuss the, the other side of things about no platforming. We've spoken here about the damaging effects that it can have and the potential legal ramifications and consequences that something like this can have. But at the same time, you know, we also have to discuss the reasons why NUS originally began this no platforming craze, which I really think it did come from them. So one of the key examples that they use, someone who can't come to speak, is, uh, the BNP, the British National Party, consider them far right and fascists. And I think, to be honest, aside from the members themselves, I think pretty much everyone in this country would agree that they're not the best people in terms of their politics. It comes to a certain stage where, yes, we're saying we're going to no platform you and we're almost taking away their right to freedom of speech. We have a lot of freedom here, but we don't have freedom from consequences. So, yes, you can say your political beliefs, they can be as racist as you want, but there are consequences that come with that. I don't necessarily think somebody immediately get no platformed. Uh, an organisation like the BNP, as soon as they were formed, it wasn't the case of, okay, you're the BNP, just from your name, we're no platforming you. There was a lot of things that added up to it. It became a far-right organization. Even their policies, the kind of people that were getting involved, the hate that they were spreading. We talk about freedom of speech, but it may not necessarily apply to something like this, because then we have the concept of the fact that there are no freedom from consequences here. So it's all well and good discussing issues around actually banning people from coming, but we also have to address the good that comes from it. So a recent example we've got is Alila Khalid. She's a Palestinian terrorist involved in some quite dodgy and very much illegal things, including hostage taking. And there's been a recent move to no platform her, including in America, where certain university wanted to come and have her speak. And the different platforms like Zoom wouldn't allow it. They said it goes against our code of conduct and our usage policy. So we have situations like this where people are actively wanting somebody who has done things in their lifetime, which is considered illegal and very much not a good thing, to come in and to speak about their experiences. And, you know, it's times like this, really, where you argue free speech shouldn't really apply to them. They're, they're not good people. So to come and have them speak, we don't want them spreading the hate on our campuses. That's definitely a big reason to consider why we should have something like no platforming as part of our core values. It's very interesting that you mentioned the BNP, because the BNP is usually brought up as an example against non-platforming, because in 2019, the BBC decided to invite them to question time. And at the time, it was really disliked that the BBC decided to invite them, because of the reasons that you have mentioned, that the BNP has some really radical views. So a lot of people wanted to persuade the BBC not to platform them, but still the BBC decided to platform them. And what happened at the question time at BBC is that Nick Griffin, who was the leader of the BMP at the time, put forward really, really badly on question time. So what happened is that the other politicians there at question time could challenge him on many of his views, and his radical views got exposed on BBC. And because of that, on the next election, the BMP lost all of his seats in the parliament. So actually, because of these reasons, 
the BMP and having BMP platformed on BBC is usually brought up as an example against non-platforming because this example shows that by platforming a radical ideologist, you can actually prove that individual wrong and you can convince the general public that that individual is wrong and his views are not supposed to be uh, supported. I think I completely agree with Lily about her point that controversial beliefs or unpopular beliefs or perhaps somewhat groundless and irrational beliefs should be confronted and defeated based on merit other than for your arbitrary restrictions. Because the problem is that by restricting uh, public access to those opinions, especially in places like universities, which are supposed to be marketplaces of ideas, places where ideas roam freely and where they are debated, some emerge as triumphant, some get defeated. I think the whole idea is that if you restrict public access to some controversial ideas, they will become Eve's apple, as it were. People will actually be interested in those ideas because they'll find them unconventional, non-conformist. Is the same reason why ISIS terrorists, for instance, would target people who are disenchanted with society and who will look for alternatives because those people would want that nonconformity. People like nonconformity when they're dissatisfied with something. And I'm sure that there are people at university campuses which are dissatisfied with either their academics or with their social life or with their future. And for this reason, by shutting out public access to those ideas, those people could actually develop a liking, a predilection towards those ideas, which would be far more dangerous than if they only saw those people as part of a wider panel and saw that those ideas were in fact ludicrous and not deserving of their attention. At the same time, I think here we kind of almost bring up the same principle we have with smoking. On cigarette packages, you have the smoking kills label. And I was wondering why we cannot label those speakers, speakers who we consider controversial, as racist extremists, especially if they consider themselves to be thus. Because a lot of the people who are no platformed do consider themselves to be controversial and love playing that controversy card to attract all those countercultural groups and demographics. So what if we label them? Thanks, Dan. I totally hear that point. I'm going to come and counter this a little bit. So we say about labeling. The issue with labeling, though, is at the moment what people find offensive can sometimes be quite fluid and can change very quickly it's sometimes quite difficult to pinpoint certain examples. I mean, you know, people just aren't necessarily willing to listen to other people. So uh, for an example that I'm going to bring up, that happened quite recently with, with J.K. Rowling, the famous author of the Harry Potter books. She put a tweet out with regards to an opinion headline that said, creating a more equal post-COVID-19 world for people who menstruate. Now, J.K. Rowling took took great issue with this, and she insinuated from her tweet that, in fact, anyone that menstruates is a woman. Um, People took great offense to this, and they said, what about transgender individuals who may not necessarily identify as women, but still menstruate? So we have something which, even 10, 15 years ago, it wouldn't have even been a question. Women menstruated. We didn't have this discussion of transgenderism coming into it. And the point I'm trying to make from this is a lot of things, definitions even, they're quite fluid nowadays. So something which may not have been offensive 10 years ago is now suddenly quite offensive. If we start putting free speech limitations down to something like this and, and, you know, labeling certain people, the question then has to come, do we ever take away those labels? Is there ever a, a time when we say, okay, this used to be offensive, this is no longer offensive? Well, this wasn't offensive, but this now is. I think there are so many different considerations that finding one objective definition for what would be considered offensive and not offensive isn't so easy. So I think the J.K. Rowling one's a perfect example. It was very split. It split a lot of people. Some were saying, look, you're being transphobic. You're not recognizing the fact. 
that are people who menstruate, but they identify as men. And then other people were saying, hang on, this is a biological fact of life. What are you saying here? I don't see the problem. You just have to kind of appreciate that no platform, it can be very, very subjective. And that can be dangerous. But there are some things where I think it crosses the line for everybody involved. Something like terrorism, it's a very, very dangerous idea. It's not got anything to do with academic freedom and academic integrity. Rather, they're just taking extreme values and they're using it for a very bad reason. Those are the sorts of things we should be walking away from, not from academic discussion. So I think labelling someone as racist or as controversial, it's not necessarily the line of reasoning we can go down just because of how much it can change. Well, I think that this is a valid point, but at the same time, I have two retorts, if I may. So the first of which, I do think that while the definitions of offensiveness are fluid and change from time to time as well as from place to place. The definitions of extremism are perhaps not so much, and I think that especially if people identify themselves as extremists, which a lot of the people who get no platform do, not all of them, but a lot of them do, such as BNP officials or you know members of the many Islamic organizations I've mentioned hitherto, why not label them what they want to call them? At the same time, I also think that Lily mentioned a point earlier about the BNP speaker being included on Question Time as a panel, I think that could be a good way of preventing no platforming, but at the same time reconciling the fact that those views could be divisive upon certain community. Because that way, you'll invite that speaker, but they'll be able to present their views only in the biggest, wider spectrum of the views on the topic. And that way, some of their arguments could be defeated on merit, some of their arguments could be defeated due to other speakers outlining why their arguments are more appealing, and so on and so forth. You could actually teach people that not only that those arguments somehow irrational or wrong or controversial, but also why they are like that and why other arguments, such as, I don't know, our conservative argument, our liberal argument, our capitalist argument, our socialist argument, is actually a much better solution to a particular issue discussed. Maybe to come in on that point is that so you mentioned Daniel radical speakers, and I think whenever we are speaking about radical speakers, it's really easy to make our argumentation a little bit more emotional. So I think it can be beneficial to detach known platforming from emotional argumentations and to focus on groups which are usually known platforms, but they are not triggering emotions. So I think if you look at, let's say, people who hold anti-vaccine views, they don't like vaccinations, then we tend to think of them as their ideas are not scientifically funded, we don't support those ideas, and we don't platform them. But I think what's really interesting now that what's happening because of the coronavirus vaccinations, that I see a lot of people adopting this anti-vaccination views because they are afraid of the coronavirus vaccinations. So, so far, there was an academic agreement that we don't platform anti-vaccination ideas because we don't think that they are scientifically funded. But then now suddenly we are in a situation that a lot of people start to believe in these ideas because simply they are afraid of the circumstances in which this new vaccination was developed. And I think, and this goes back to the idea that then I mentioned about platforming in certain ideas wisely, that let's say if now we would like to reassure the public that the new vaccination is safe, then it might be a good idea to show people that anti-vaccination arguments are flawed and they are not scientifically funded. Because if you can prove those ideas wrong, then maybe you can reconcile society with the fact that, yes, this vaccination is safe, you can use them. So I would say that generally, platforming anti-vaccination ideas is not a wise idea because we don't 
think that they are correct. But now we are in a really special situation when more and more people start to believe in this idea. So now it makes sense to talk about them and to prove them wrong so we can convince the society that we have a vaccination which is safe and they are safe to take it. Well, thanks, Lily, for that. I really do understand this. Anti-vaxxers have existed for many years, but in the past couple of months, it's become a real danger, especially for us coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. On top of that, it's the education that can be the big issues. People don't understand how to sort through what is real, what is fake. To use the dreaded term fake news, it's hard for people to see what is and what isn't. I think more institutions could potentially adopt policies such as Twitter and Facebook, which they've started doing right now. They've got little warnings at the bottom on things that could be considered contentious or not necessarily factually true. So, for example, with Donald Trump, they've never removed his account. He gets special privileges as a world leader. But they have, under some of his tweets and Facebook posts, put little disclaimers saying what information has been given over here is not necessarily the entire truth. And maybe disclaimers on speakers that may be our solution to no platform allowing us to hear what they have to say but at the same time making sure it's known that what they're saying may be problematic or in fact not even true well absolutely i think that's a good way of going about this thing where we'll be able to tell the people that something is controversial you talked about education i think that putting speakers in the panel would be a very good way for students to hear a variety of views but also hear those views engaged against each other as opposed to on their own because i think that when students would witness an intelligent civil discussion a discourse a disquisition on why one theory is better than the other or why trusting the vaccine is better than not trusting the vaccine they will be able to make up their minds and develop a greater analytical capacity to process information and counterpoise fake news yes i absolutely agree so this is what i also wanted to say that uh, panel discussions, even with people who are not holding original views, that can form part of the education because you can educate people through discussions. So I think that what Dan said was really true. The same happened at, at the BNP example that I shared that some people who voted for BNP wasn't entirely aware of all the views that BNP is holding. But once BNP was put on a panel discussion, the views of the speaker was challenged suddenly these views got exposed. So the general public, who was maybe not entirely aware of what the BMP is, was educated. And then they could realize, because of this panel discussion, that the BMP is wrong. And that's why in the next election, they lost all of the seats that they were having in the investment today. I think Lily has a point there, and I think we are starting to reach consensus. Well, I was hoping to discuss perhaps some other specific instances and whether we believe that something should have been done uh, drastically differently. For instance, I think if we look at the case of Jermaine Greer, she was she's an Australian liberation feminist writer, as it were. You know, liberation feminists are people who are driving hard female emancipation. She's not really a conservative or a family traditionalist. And she held positions, uh, academic positions at Cambridge and Warwick universities. But despite her not the most right-wing or even centrist background on some issues, she was no platformed at Cardiff and Bristol universities due to her argument that transgender women were not women. And the main argument that was adduced in favor of this decision was that to no platform a fascist, but to include somebody who is also trying to dehumanize another group of people under the aegis of freedom of free speech is to quote unquote, essay an impossible hierarchy of bigotry in which some people's identities matter more than others. 
What do you think of that? Do you think that if we were to no platform some completely radical speakers, but let other speakers do, are we creating a hierarchy in which some people's identities matter more than others? This is an incredible point. Thank you for bringing that up. I, I think this is a big issue that we're seeing in the left at the moment. The left are fighting their holy war, if you want. And within their holy war, what is basically being said is you're either with us or you're wrong. There's a very clear hierarchy that they're trying to put forward. They're not open. I'm, I'm not saying this is true of all cases, but I'm saying that there's a general thought that if you're not with the left, then you are considered a racist, you are considered a homophobe, a transphobe, an anti-Semite, Islamophobe. All of these different words get thrown at you if you don't identify with the left. And we have a situation here where we're having a clear hierarchy being forced onto people. And I think that does get very, very dangerous. For people in schools, if you're telling them that unless they are supportive of the left wing, then they are just an inherently bad person. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's something that's happening a lot. And we end up creating a situation where, as you say, we're creating a clear hierarchy through this no platforming. And all that's actually happening is pure proper education isn't getting across. Students are hearing a very much one-sided argument. We're hearing this side is good. We are the holy warriors. And the other side, they're bad, terrible people, and you should hate them at all costs. Now, this is a discussion about saying, don't be a terrorist. We don't like terrorists. Great, that's amazing. Don't be a terrorist. But when it's like, if you have political opinions that are slightly right of centre, you're a bad person. That's poisonous. It's dangerous to society. It creates such a, a terrible situation. We have this on campus at the moment. Saying you are a Tory or you vote for the Conservative Party, you're immediately shunned. It's a taboo word and it's a bad, bad thing to say. That's ridiculous. They are the current sitting government. They are a significant political party in this country. To say that if you identify as a supporter of them makes you a bad and terrible person, it's just wrong. And creating this hierarchy through no platform and just leads to a dangerous cycle of uneducated generations, which just leads out of control until we reach a certain new level where political discourse and discussion doesn't exist. That's the type of thing you get under dictatorships. You get single-minded thought. That's not what we want. We want our society open different ways of thinking otherwise we wouldn't be such a good society though the west is is doing so well in terms of liberal thinking and being able to have political discussions and if we keep up with too much of the no platforming we're just going to lose it all